All right, three, two, one. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, I have a very special guest, somebody who I've been trying to track down for months now. I think we exchanged about 12 or 13 emails at last count, but uh, <laughs> I finally was able to get a time to do an interview. Her name is Lisa Peace, P-E-A-S-E, and she published a book on December 18th, 2018, the title of which is A Lie Too Big to Fail, The Real History of the Assassination of Robert F. Kennedy. I finished the book this morning. It's an excellent read. She has uh, 65 five-star reviews on Amazon, and uh, I highly recommend this book. There's a lot of details, a lot of firsthand uh, knowledge from from her, but she also wrote another book with famed JFK researcher Jim D. Eugenio, and that title was The Assassinations Probe Magazine on JFK, MLK, RFK, and Malcolm X. So she was the author and editor of that. And she, in her book, there, there's a lot of information, some current stuff. I, we can talk about that in the interview. She was, uh, gave testimony about the Dag Hammarskjöld case and, uh, uh, Kamala Harris. She talked a little bit about, but we can get to that. But Lisa, are you there? I am. Awesome. Ready to go. Awesome. Cool. Thanks for agreeing to the interview. I'm glad we were finally able to set a time. Uh, great job on the book for people who don't know your name or, what you've kind of been up to in the journalistic world. Can you talk a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in this subject? Sure. Uh, The year the Internet went public, my very first search ever on the Internet was JFK assassination. JFK, not Robert Kennedy. And I found a news group where people were vehemently, and I do emphasize vehemently, (laughs) discussing the case back and forth. And at that point, I had read like a couple books I picked up recently at a at a garage sale, so, you know, I thought I was an expert, but I'd read two books on a subject, which, as I learned later, was ridiculous, you know, it takes years to be an expert on any subject, and two books is not enough to qualify you, but now, even as I was, I jumped in, and I started doing battle with these people, and I found something very interesting going on, there was a dynamic where there were certain people who just simply could not read the evidence correctly, And I came to wonder if they were being paid to read the evidence incorrectly the more I started to understand the case better and realize who the ultimate sponsors were. But in the course of arguing the JFK case, one day I was at the downtown library in Los Angeles. I pulled out a drawer looking for microfilm, but I pulled out the the wrong, quote-unquote, drawer and found the SUS files. That was the special unit senator files from the LAPD's investigation of the Robert Kennedy assassination. And by that time, I had read one book on the case, so I knew a little bit about it. And I also knew the files had only been released to the public four years earlier. So I thought, well, there's a good chance I'm going to find something that wasn't in the book I read and that maybe isn't in any of the books, because at that time, there were maybe three, five books on the case maximum. And uh, so I, you know, I started looking at the microfilm, and I was just amazed. The first reel that I put in randomly, because they were unlabeled, I had no idea what I was reading, talked about another guy who was apprehended at the hotel that night that people thought was Sirhan but couldn't have been Sirhan because Sirhan was arrested in the pantry and taken out by the police. And this guy was apprehended while running across the hotel lobby and apprehended and ultimately released. And I'm like, well, who is that? And that kind of led me down this huge rabbit hole. And like I said, it was so interesting to me and so kind of new and fresh because the JFK case at that point there were so many voices on it, but there were very few on the RFK case. So it was a little easier to see. It wasn't as dense, and I didn't have to deal with a lot of disinformation because 
people hadn't put time in to disinforming about it to the same degree as they have on the JFK case. Uh, so about 10 years ago, I got to the point where I'm like, wow, I know all this stuff, and I really kind of owe it to the world to share what I've learned because it's not in anybody else's books. And right around that time, Shane O'Sullivan was writing a book, and I'm like, oh, good. Now I won't have to because <laughs> you know, I, I really didn't want to write a book. It's, it's a freaking lot of work. It's a yes. lot of work. And I work full time, so it's like this is on the side, you know, that I'm doing this. And unfortunately, Shane's book I thought was really kind of plain. It didn't really advance the case. It was a good summary of what was known, but it didn't really have any big new revelations, and it definitely didn't have the, have the important things that I've been fighting. And so that's when I knew I had to write the book. And for a while, I went back and forth juggling that and a screenplay. And finally, I thought, forget the screenplay. I have to tell this story. And so that's what you, you read and finished reading, and thank you for that, because I know it's a tough read. It's 500 pages, and this is the Low Attention Society now, or anything more than 10 pages is like, you know, a big hassle for right. people. Well, you know, I'm trying to change the trend. Right. I'm trying to buck the trend. I try to read all the books that uh, my guests uh, <laughs> are, are writing. So, I, you know, I learned a lot myself. So for the, for the death of Robert F. Robert F. Kennedy, that was June 5th in the early morning, of June 5th, 1968, maybe what you can do is talk about what the first, like what the, the known or narrative that the public is supposed to know uh, happened the night right. of January. So, so what the police and the DA's office and the press told us is that, you know, shortly after midnight, after winning the California primary, which didn't guarantee him the Democratic nomination, but which made it hugely competitive and he was very likely to win. Um, the Democratic nomination after that, uh, 15 minutes, I mean, 15 minutes after midnight, he walked off the stage to the right into a kitchen pantry serving area where a young man named Sirhan Sirhan, a Palestinian immigrant, pulled out a gun and fired at him. Kennedy falls over shot. Five other people are shot. All six of them have bullets removed from them and Two bullets were removed from Kennedy, at least, as I talk about in my book. And one bullet was removed from everybody else, so that's seven bullets. And then there were three bullet holes in the ceiling, according to the LAPD. And they said, well, one bullet went and ricocheted up into the, the ceiling, bounced back down, hit one of the other victims, and one of the bullets got lost in the ceiling. So that was all eight bullets. So case closed. A lot of people saw their hand pull out a gun and fire, so there's no question that he pulled out a gun and fired. Absolutely no question about that. Um, a little awkward on the angles for him to have hit all those people, and especially awkward for him to have been able to fire to kill Robert Kennedy, since Sir Han, by all accounts, was in front of Kennedy. And by the coroner's account and by the you know the rest of the physical evidence, Kennedy was shot from behind. Right. So that was the first kind of big red flag. Like right. something's wrong with this. And no Kennedy. witnesses saw Sir Han, Sir Han within three feet of Kennedy or two feet of Kennedy. So he wasn't. Right. He wasn't that right. Close. Right, and and that was something that was noted in the early days by you know there were some early researchers and I'm going to get their names wrong, so I'm not going to say them, but I'll say look at my book because I mentioned them. But there was like a housewife in Beverly Hills who was doing very good work on the JFK case and then got interested in this case, and another man, Floyd Nelson, Lillian Castellano, that's the name I was looking for. Um, and, of course, Paul Schrade, one of the victims who was hit with Robert Kennedy in the pantry, he knew enough from the, you know, where he was standing 
that he couldn't have been shot the way the police thought he'd been shot. Because obviously, as you get into the evidence, obviously there were at least two shooters. And I argue there were more than two shooters. But it, with at least two shooters, that would explain the bullets that landed. Whereas one shooter, you just you have to make those bullets do loop-de-loop to get right. them to do what the LAPD yeah, wanted them to do. You're kind so of in the magic bullet theory like the, with right, JFK. Right, yeah, it's like five magic bullets or something. Right. It's, it's just ridiculous. And, and so Paul Schrade over the years has also strongly argued this was a conspiracy. It needs to be reinvestigated. He's worked with lawyers and city officials and tried his damnedest God blessing to get the case reopened, but ultimately has been unsuccessful. And certain legal appeals in the system have run out, you know, barring new evidence. So I was hoping, you know, with my book, I could surface a lot of the new evidence that's never been discussed before. But then what the legal system does is say, well, why didn't Sir Hans lawyers find that? If Lisa could find it, then a lawyer could have filed it. And as you'll see in my book, I think his first lawyers absolutely had no interest in proving him innocent. They they didn't question the LAPD scenario. You have to first suspect a conspiracy to prove it. Right. You don't suspect it, you're not going to find it. And the so. Cooper himself was somewhat suspect. His first attorney had some interesting yeah. connections, but also... Well, you write in your book that they really just were trying to save him from uh, Sirhan Sirhan from the death penalty. It seemed to be their primary right. objective. Yeah. Right. And it, it didn't serve them. If, if, if the choice was arguing conspiracy, according to one of the defense team members, Robert Blair Kaiser, he's like, Lisa, how can we get Sirhan off by arguing he was part of a conspiracy? Because to argue the truth of the case, that he was a hypnotized patsy, was way beyond the scope of their own investigation, a lot of the evidence that I, you know, read has not was not available at that time. No one knew, for example, at that point in time, that the CIA had these mind control programs going on. Right. Some of them using people very much like Sirhan in scenarios, very much like what happened in the pantry. But that was not known at the time. No one would have suspected that. And you know, so you can kind of understand why they did such a bad job. They went out of their way not to prove a conspiracy. Now, that's, on the other hand, that is the most innocent spin I could put on it. The other spin, which I could also put on it based on the evidence, is that Cooper was himself compromised. He was the lead attorney, but he was involved in a mob case, and he had illegally obtained evidence that was used at the trial, and so he had his own punishment hanging over his head for the whole Sirhan trial. They could have given him his punishment for that separate case at any point in time, but they withheld it until he completed the Sirhan trial. Now, it's hard not to see that as, like, threat bribe. Like, right. you know, if you let Sirhan get off, we're going to disbar you. If you, you know, make sure Sirhan gets convicted, we'll get you off with a light fine, which is exactly what happened. Sirhan got convicted, and, and Cooper got off with a light fine. Yeah, like $1,000 and kept his, kept his law license. He had grand jury yeah. information, yeah. Right. So. Right. And like I said, the, the highest penalty could have been disbarment and even jail. The lowest penalty was a $1,000 fine. So he got the very lowest. And I'm thinking, if you're going to give somebody the very lowest, why would you hold that over their head, you know, for the six-month, you know, period, you know, before, in the run-up to the trial and then the four months of the trial or whatever? Why wouldn't you just tell, find the guy right up front? Right. And that's why I think he was held over his head for a reason. Yeah, it's suspicious. And that, he wasn't the only one. There's a lot of the police assets and a lot of this. You talk about kind of an interagency meeting 
And a lot of these guys also have very questionable ties. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. One of the shocking things I found when I got into the uh, LEPD's SUS files is all these special investigator guys. Most of them had intelligence backgrounds. And it's funny, Fernando Fora, who is one of the only journalists to actually investigate a possible conspiracy in this case, told me that the the SUS floor at LAPD was known as the CIA floor, according to one of his informants, but that's where all the CIA guys in the LAPD were. And we we know of some of the projects that the CIA and the LAPD did jointly together, and I talk about a little bit of that in my book. I think people don't understand. They think they believe what they see in the movies or what they hear in the news reports. Oh, the CIA doesn't act domestically. Well, they did a lot in the 60s, and it was illegal, but they did it anyway. Right. And then when Congress tried to prosecute them over this or, you know, investigate it during the 70s in the Church Committee and the Pike Committee and the Rockefeller Commission, each committee bowed to the will of the CIA in the end. The CIA won every investigation of itself at great cost to this country because now you have this agency that's kind of out of control. Right. Never yeah, really reined in. Yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, it's important in context, too, because... RFK's brother, JFK, also had conflicts, and I think you talk about that in the book, about his um, butting heads with, you know, Dulles and all these other people at the CIA. So, you know, it wasn't like JFK was in some kind of vacuum. People like to say Robert Kennedy and Alan Dulles were friends. That's ridiculous. (laughs) Friendly in the sense that we're colleagues and we have to work together, you know, that kind of friendly, yes. But friends, no. And in fact, after Alan Dulles was fired in the wake of the, you know, Bay of Pigs disaster, which, by the way, happened in JFK's first 100 days in office. It's not like he planned that and it failed. He he inherited that and was told it would succeed, and then it failed, and then he cut his losses. And he fired the people responsible, which is something that had never been done before. No one had ever held anybody in the CIA accountable for any failure over, you know, what was by then their let's see, 47 to, you know, almost 20 years in existence. And so that just kind of sent shockwaves because Alan Dulles was kind of like the godfather. He was like the mob boss with the CIA. You don't fire the godfather without consequences. Right, GFK, he didn't just fire Dulles. He fired, yeah, he fired the whole top top tier of CIA too, right? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, but I want to add that what Robert Kennedy did is he wanted to make sure there were no Dulleses left because they'd already been upset with John Foster Dulles in the State Department prior to Kennedy becoming president. Um, But after they fired Alan Dulles, they they looked around. It's like, are there any other Dulleses? Let's get rid of them. And there was. There was Eleanor Dulles, a sister of Alan Dulles, who was working in the State Department. And they had her fired. So, you know, it it looked personal. It felt personal. And and to some degree, it was personal. (laughs) I didn't know that. I wasn't aware of that story. So, yeah, so JFK, you know, is moving into this environment um, of real intrigue, whether, you know, there's probably a lot of forces who did not want him to reach the presidency. Yeah, well, again, you had Alan Dulles and his brother John Foster had been running America's foreign policy for pretty much since World War II, you know, from right under the top leadership, and then they became the top leadership. John Foster at State and Allen at CIA when Eisenhower got elected. They came in, you know, as a team, basically. And they had had unfettered access to 
funding and whatever they wanted to do, they made it happen. And then Kennedy comes in and actually wants to be president. And he wants to decide what we do and don't do. And, for example, under Eisenhower, the CIA got to run our diplomats abroad, <laughs> meaning our ambassadors had to answer to the CIA. And Kennedy comes in and goes, no, that's crazy. The CIA should answer to our ambassadors, not the other way around, <laughs> which to me is correct. You know, it's like right. the, the CIA has it. Has, I am not anti-CIA in the sense that I believe strongly we need an intelligence service. I understand they have to do some nefarious things to get to the bad guys. I do. I get it. I understand it. I support the ones who are truly doing the hard work out there on the front lines. I, you know, I respect that. What I don't respect is people running their own private agendas because they don't agree with the president. That I have no respect for because then it's not a democracy. Then it's a bunch of rich crafts doing their own crappy stuff. Right. And that's what was happening. And that's what Kennedy was trying to put an end to. And in fact, he sent the FBI in to raid, you know, an anti Castro Cuban training camp in New Orleans, not in New Orleans, but nearby, uh, what's that lake, Lake Pontchartrain. Right. Um, you know, he shut down these anti Castro operations. And that's the other thing. The Kennedys. People have said for years that the Kennedys were trying to kill Castro, and that's provably not true. And there's one huge big liar behind all that. It was a former New York Times reporter who was also working for the CIA, and he's the one who kind of put the bug in everybody's ear and said, oh, the Kennedys did it. And he knew he was lying. He knew, we know from other records, that he knew that wasn't true. But he put out that lie because if the Kennedys were trying to kill Castro, then it's less of a motive for the CIA to kill Kennedy because they're all on the same team. Right. But if the Kennedys are saying, don't kill Castro, and the CIA is trying to kill Castro anyway, then it exposes the split and the rift, and it gives the motive for why the CIA would have killed Kennedy and both Kennedys. Because once they killed Rob, JFK, as I strongly believe they did from my research, um, it makes sense that they would want to keep Robert Kennedy from getting to the highest office in the land where he would have the power to reopen an investigation, and he did, he had said that to friends, and even in the public one time that you know he's like no one is more interested in finding out who killed my brother than me, right. and anybody who knew him knew that to be true, and publicly he said yeah I support the Warren Commission, but privately he didn't believe it at all. He knew it was a farce, and he was looking into what had really happened, and the CIA couldn't allow him to get to office because he could have destroyed them. Right, so the CIA is there, and it's interesting too. You write in the book something that was surprising to me is that I think you, it was Redden, who I think was the chief of police, said he was in contact with the CIA, or he. he... Oh yeah! Oh my gosh! I was at UCLA watching film footage of his first press conference, which is funny because the press conference itself was a diversion. They were secretly transporting Sirhan from the LA city jail to the LA county jail during that press conference, and they didn't want him killed like, you know, Oswald had been killed while being transferred from one jail to another, and so this press conference was the diversion to hide it, but at one point they asked, you know, Redden says something about, yeah, we've been talking to all these officials from, you know, this group and that group and the CIA, and of course, what alert journalists said, why the CIA, and Redden just stumbled, he goes, the CIA, the CIA, the, the, the CIA, it's really hard for him to get the words out. And he had been Mr. Cool, Mr. Smooth before and after that moment. But when it came to that, it was like, oh, my God, I just exposed it. Oh, no. Right. <laughs> He's like, really well, choking on 
funny. People need to see the video. It's funny and, and sad. Right. Well, what are the... What, 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 what are they doing in... Right. What's the CI doing? doing? Please continue, sir. I'm sorry? I was just saying, oh, what yeah, is the CI doing, doing there? Right, right. So why is the CI the case? Well, one obvious reason, Sir Hammond was a foreign. You know, so the obvious excuse was they wanted the CI to provide background information on Sir Ed and his time in Palestine and the situations he grew up in. I mean, that's the obvious excuse. But it's really hard to justify, I don't want to say, other things that happened. And... If the CIA was behind the crime, as again, as I strongly suspect, I, I believe I proved in my book they were, it's much more sinister that they're involved in the early meetings with the LAPD. And, and again, what are they doing with city government? And and why are they at the table? Why aren't they just getting a fax somewhere, you know, saying, hey, can you research this and show us information? Why are they literally there at the table? Right. So... Yeah. And I mean the <clears throat> the kind of shaping of the narrative around Sirhan Sirhan pretty much started right from the beginning. Would you agree with that? Yes, I, I believe he was picked because there had been, you know, a year ago to the day that Robert Kennedy was shot was the six day war between the Arabs and the Israelis, um, over Palestine and other issues. And so how better to support our ally Israel against at that point our non-ally Arabs, you know, which changed pretty quickly after that, as you know, you know, we got in bed with the Saudis pretty quickly after that. But at that time, we were still kind of choosing Israel over the Arabs. And, uh, you know, in foreign policy, although I, I, I do want to say that JFK did not support that. He, he wanted to support them equally. Like, he didn't want to show favoritism one to the other. He was probably the last president not to show favoritism in that way. Uh, so it made for a great propaganda narrative in the same way that if Oswald was a pro-Castro communist, that made for a great narrative for what the CIA was trying to do at the time, which was to take down Castro. So how better than to have somebody who could be painted as an agent of Castro shooting, you know, JFK? Never mind that Oswald didn't shoot anybody, and never mind that Sirhan didn't shoot anybody. Right. Well, <laughs> right. Well, that's the interesting. And the other narrative that was weird, and one of the things you point out in the book, is that Sirhan Sirhan started acting strange right from the beginning. Right from the beginning that he was in that pantry. Correct? Well, he'd been acting strange for ever since a fall from a horse, like months ago. It's like something was happening to him. And, and he, his doctor had said he had only minor cuts and bruises that he had treated. Well, if he had only minor cuts and bruises, why did he go to the doctor 13 more times in the next 12 months? That's not usual. <laughs> That's very strange. So either he was a lot more seriously wounded than anybody ever admitted, or something else was going on at those doctor visits. And maybe right. the doctor visits were really cover for, you know, the hypnotic conditioning. Well, it's what, very what, clear yeah. Right. One of the shocking things that you wrote is he disappeared for two weeks. Like, I couldn't even believe that. Right. I, yeah. One, one of his brothers said, again, after these minor cuts and bruises that he was instantly treated for, he literally, like, disappeared. No one in his family knew where he was for the next two weeks. And in the book, I talked about how uh, one of the, like, fathers of modern hypnosis, who was also working with the CIA, um, I'm turning around to look at my bookshelf because I'm temporarily forgetting. Was it Brian? <laughs> No, not Brian, uh, the older guy. West? Jolly and West? Uh, uh, no, no, no. Esther Brooks. 
Estabrook. Yes, yes thank Estabrook. you, George Estabrook. Yeah. Like, uh, George Estabrook had suggested that a way to find people for hypnosis was to call the hospital. Now, he meant, you know, during World War II and stuff like that. But Sirhan was right outside a Navy facility when he was injured and was taken to a hospital where they also, you know, I'm sure treated the Navy people from that facility. It's the Naval Surface Weapons Division or something. Um, big, huge naval base in the middle of a landlocked area. Yeah, it's in Corona, right? Like, that's in, like, in yeah, yeah, it's 15 miles yeah, from the ocean. I, yeah, as I was writing the book, there was all these references to Syrian going to Corona in the last, you know, few months before the assassination. I'm like, what the hell is so appealing about Corona? Right. And so I finally drove out there. Of course, I pull up my map to look and see, you know, what can I go to? And there's this huge naval base. And I'm like, what is that doing there? And there actually is a little bit of a lake. So it's like I can see where they could try, you know, a submarine or something. I don't think it's a very deep lake. It's almost like a man-made lake. But the Navy was also incredibly interested in mind control programs. And I thought that was interesting, too. Um, in fact, some guy kind of spilled the beans on that, and then his superiors came down on him for that, and he had to retract everything he had said. But he talked about how he would pull people out of jails and then train them to be assassins and station them in the embassies, and then when we needed a hit job, we would use those guys. And they were totally deniable because they were criminals anyway, right? right. They had a record. Right. Um, so it worked out, you know, well for them. And plus the criminals, yeah, they had no credibility if they claimed the CI program, then no one would believe them. In Sirhan's case, Sirhan had no memory of any kind of hypnosis. And in fact, he didn't believe he had been hypnotized. His his own defense team hired a hypnotist hoping to recover his memory of the shooting in the pantry. Or if you read the transcript of that, hoping to implant a memory of the shooting in the pantry. Pull out your gun, Sirhan. Reach for your gun. Do you see him coming? Fire at him, Sirhan. Fire. It's like he's trying to implant the memory of him. And you could argue, maybe successfully, that he honestly believed that, that Sirhan was firing, so he didn't think he was leaving the witness. But another hypnotist who just talked to Sirhan, what do you see? What do you hear? What do you feel? What's going on? Found that, you know, Sirhan was brought into the pantry by a girl in a polka dot dress who held him. Until Kennedy entered, he didn't really notice that Kennedy entered, but she kind of tapped him on the shoulder, and then he pulled out a gun and started firing as if he would, he said he thought he was back at the target range that he'd been shooting at all day. And he thought he saw those circular targets, and he was just firing at targets. And it wasn't until he was nearly choked to death that he kind of momentarily came back to his senses and realized, oh, my God, I might have shot someone. And... Uh, that this is very disturbing for people to understand because no one wants to believe that they could be brainwashed or controlled in any way. That's a very difficult concept for a lot of people to understand. Right. And you just have to understand that just because you don't like it or it makes you uncomfortable doesn't mean it isn't possible or that it hasn't been done. And I went to a hypnosis show. I went to a bunch of them at one point because I really wanted to understand how it worked. It was fascinating to me that as I read the literature, no one could really explain exactly what hypnosis was or all these varying definitions. And I thought, well, isn't it obvious? You know, it's like, right. and, and so I went to see a show. And, yeah, there were people who were playing along and pretending to be hypnotized. But I saw this one woman, and I talked to her for like 20 minutes before the show, not knowing she was going to be in the show or be one of the volunteers. Just as normal as could be, you know, happy, nice person there with her family. 
And so I was dying to see her after the show because I wanted to know if she'd been completely unhypnotized or not. And she had not. And I found this out because I saw her standing alone looking distressed. So I thought, oh, she got separated from her family. So I went up. I said, hey, what's going on? And, and she's like, well, I have to give this back. And it was a piece of play money that the hypnotist had given her on stage. You know, he told her it was a $35,000 check. And she jumped around. She was all excited about it. And after the show was over, she still thought it was a $35,000 check. Now, this is after the hypnotist had already left the area. And that was the first time I'm like, oh, my God, this stuff is real. And I even tried to get her to see that it wasn't. I tried to, like, break the hypnotism, you know, myself. Of course, I didn't know what I was doing. I'm not a trained hypnotist. But I said, can I hold this with you? Can we look at this together? I said, let's pull it a little closer. And do you see this number in the upper right? And what does that say? And and she, like, didn't know what I was saying. I said, can you see this? It's 100. It's a little circle. And she goes, No. It's a $35,000 check, and I'm like, oh, my God. I literally could not shake her of that illusion. And so that's the first time I really understand. They gave Sirhan the illusion that he was back at the shooting range, and oh. he pulled out a gun and fired straight ahead. And that's all they needed to create the illusion for the people in the pantry that Sirhan was killing Kennedy. Now... If you're planning a plot like this and you're going to use a guy under hypnosis, I don't want him to have real bullets because what if he kills my real assassin who's hiding out behind Kennedy? What if he somehow kills the real assassin before he gets the job done? You know, so right. it makes sense that Sirhan was firing blanks. Now, other researchers just don't agree with me. It kind of, you know, makes them look like they didn't do their homework. I think there's a little bit of professional jealousy sometimes. Uh, people have gone after my work now on that. Uh, but if you look at it, lots of people, and I mean lots of people in the pantry thought Sirhan was firing a cap gun. They said it sounded like a cap gun. Rayford Johnson, who had seen cap guns all his life because he was an Olympic athlete. He, he would saw starter pistols all the time. He said it looked like a starter pistol throwing off residue. I mean, these are credible witnesses. You know, there's guys with artillery training. It's like it sounded like a cat gun. Right. And I tend to believe those witnesses over the researchers who have a vested interest in that not being true because they didn't get there. You see what I'm saying? Absolutely. Absolutely. And other people you said sounded like firecrackers. Like a real gun in that in that small of an environment probably wouldn't sound like a firecracker. Unless it was muzzled or something. Right. Right. And it's very likely whoever did have real guns was using silencers. Right. And it's also very obvious to me that they were all hidden or cloaked in some way. Some people saw a guy running out with a gun with some sort of either a towel over it or somebody described it as a reporter's notebook and somebody else said a rolled-up poster. It was like everybody noticed it was cloaked in some way, but what it was cloaked with, they differed on. <laughs> they were not sure. But, uh, well, to Noguchi, Noguchi was the coroner, the chief coroner, and to his credit... He stuck to his story that the the deadly shot to Robert Kennedy's head came in behind his right ear, close to close enough to leave powder burns on his head, so like an inch or three inches, and nobody right. saw Sir Hans around that close. So clearly, that story right, of Sir Hans right. doesn't make sense. And I thought there were a couple witnesses who thought they saw a gun up against Kennedy's head, but when I looked into whether they recognized Sir Hans as that shooter, they not one of them did. 
And so then I started mapping the positions of where the witnesses were. And all the people who had a clear view of both Kennedy and Sirhan said the same thing, three feet from the gun muzzle to Kennedy. That was the common denominator. Some people put it further away, but no one put it closer than three feet when they saw them both. And to me, that was the best evidence. Right. And well, there's like a- I said, if somebody sees a gun at, at Kennedy's head, but there's another shooter clearly in the room, you know, and, well, you and, and I say clearly because not only were those eight bullets that we mentioned earlier, but there were four bullet holes in the pantry doors that were photographed by the FBI. The LAPD said they pulled two bullets out of those doors. Somebody uh, that uh, Dan Moldea interviewed saw somebody digging a bullet out of the wall. If there were bullets in the wall or in the pantry door frames, and there clearly were, then obviously there were at least two shooters because Sir Hansen could only fire eight bullets, period. And so if there's 12 bullets you know, being removed from the pantry, that's a problem for that scenario. Right. I but mean, again, if Sir Hansen's firing blanks, then, then you have at least three shooters. And in my book, I argue there were four because there were a couple of very astute witnesses who saw a guy in a white busboy uniform get right up next to Kenny's head and shoot him. Not only that, that kid looked like Sirhan, but he couldn't have been because Sirhan wasn't wearing a white busboy uniform. He was in a blue velour shirt with jeans, and you know. But they had similar facial characteristics, and I even named somebody who was suspected by the FBI of possibly being involved because he did look like Sirhan, and uh, it you know could have been him, but it could have been anybody. The thing is, there were lookalikes for Sirhan all over the hotel that night, and I also know that people, how do I want to say, white people tend not to see the differences in foreign looking people as much because they're not as familiar with them. So all those Palestinians look alike, you know, that kind of thing. Right, know? gotcha. Well, I mean, there was a Latino, I mean, he could pass for a Latino too. Well, certainly well, his 5'4". Yeah, somebody thought he was right. Mexican, yeah. Right, right. And, and others thought he was Arab, you know, not Arab, Israeli, because there was an Israeli guy who was mistaken for Sirhan named Michael Wayne. He's the one who was apprehended, and I do kind of the deepest dive on him because I think he was very involved in the plot. I don't think he was one of the shooters. I think he was there to make sure the shooters got a shot, <laughs> that the shooters were in place. I think that was his role. And it's funny because Munir told me when he saw the picture of Michael Wayne, I showed it to him one time, he's like, even I think he looks a little bit like my brother. And, you know, that's that's incredible, you know, yeah, that they have cool. this guy. Because uh, a lot of, one of the witnesses, even at the grand jury, the convicted Sirhan was actually describing Michael Wayne. And he didn't know it at the time, but the police went back to him, you know, like a few weeks later and said, are you sure this wasn't the guy you saw? And he goes, oh, yeah, that's the guy. I'm like, well, that's not Sirhan. That's Michael Wayne. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. So it was very, one of the one of the oddities that people have trouble with is how would the, the assassins know that Robert Kennedy would leave the stage of the Ambassador Hotel and go through the pantry? And what's your... What's your hypothesis for that, or how do you explain that? And my hypothesis for that is they didn't know for sure. And, in fact, the original plan was to have Kennedy go downstairs and talk to the overflow I can't even say it, overflow crowd, but then go back and talk to the news reporters. And that's the thing. At some point, he was going to talk to the news reporters because he always did that. The news reporters were right across from the pantry, across a very tiny little narrow walkway, um, 
that when you exit the pantry, there's like a two or three foot walkway, and then you would go right into the colonial room because there was a door there where you could enter, and that's where the print press was. And this had been something that Kennedy had done at every campaign stop. He always stopped to talk to the printed press, and it's one of the reasons the press actually liked him because a lot of the candidates didn't do that. All they cared about was the TV, and they could have snubbed the printed press. And Kennedy, you know, he had been a reporter himself, you know, back in 1948. He, you know, cut his teeth reporting. He actually had been to Palestine and Israel in 1948 and reported on what was going on there in a very even-handed manner. And uh, so it made sense that at some point he would come through the pantry. So you could argue, you know, one case they would know. But I also, I described there was a weird makeshift bar at the bottom of the stairs, because if you exited the stage to the right, you walked down a slight incline and then into the pantry through swinging doors. If you went left out the back, you would have gone down the stairs to the floor below, and as you turned right there, there was a makeshift bar there at the corner, and two women had tried to order a drink at that bar earlier in the night, and they'd been intercepted by a girl in a polka dot dress who said, oh, you can't get a drink at this end. And she, like, took their money and went and got them drinks and brought it back to them, which I always thought was so weird. Like, how how huffy and officious and, you know, why are you butting into somebody else's business? If there's a bar, let them order their drinks. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and But maybe it wasn't a bar at all. And Sirhan, under hypnosis by Dan Brown, who, again, is a latter-day hypnosis expert, not the one hired by his defense team, that was Bernard Diamond. Dan Brown was the open-ended, what do you see, what do you hear, what do you feel? And Sirhan remembering going to that bar at that downstairs area and said it was like me and the bartender communicated without words, like somehow he had known him from before. And so maybe that was his hypnotist on site to make sure that he didn't come out of his trance. The girl seemed to be kind of his handler and his guide to put him in place and give him the final signal but the bartender seemed to have some control over that as well. And in that same area, there were three guys who looked kind of like Sirhan, just sitting in the dark with their backs to the walls, not moving. And again, one of these two women at the bar thought that was very odd and mentioned it to the police afterwards, especially, you know, if they were looking for a girl in a polka dot dress and there might have been a conspiracy. They were like, well, if there was a conspiracy, there might have been some conspirators right there. Right. <laughs> and and so it seems to me, yeah, so it seems to me that Sirhan was going to be sent right or left. Is there an echo? Oh, there might have been just a tiny one there. Please continue. Okay. Yeah, sorry. Uh, so Sirhan was going to be sent either into the pantry to be Patsy there or downstairs to be Patsy there. Either way, there was a team at either end, I believe, of assassins waiting for him. So they didn't all have to run up or down the stairs at the same time. And again, Sir Ham remembered going backstage, literally while Kennedy is talking on the stage, he goes into the ante room behind the stage. That's where the coffee urn was. I've always wondered for years, it's like, where's this coffee urn where the girl, because Sir Ham remembered a girl pouring in coffee, and then that was like the last thing he remembered before being choked which he remembered and, of course, then coming out of hypnosis, in, you know, after being arrested. But uh, that urn was right behind the stage, and they talked to a guy, and Sirhan described him as having a big, fat, round face. Well, another witness remembered a big, tall guy with a fat, round face, 
and the polka dot tie at that very spot who told the girl and Sirhan where to go. Like, he sent them towards the pantry. So he was there monitoring the events and figuring out whether they needed to go upstairs or downstairs, basically. And I thought it was so interesting because he had a polka dot tie. There's at least two suspicious girls with either Sirhan or Sirhan lookalike wearing polka dot dresses. And then there was Kathy Fulmer, who was wearing a polka dot scarf, who was standing at the door that Kennedy walked through. So if somebody wanted to signal, hey, Kennedy's coming, she would have been in the perfect position to do that. She then volunteers herself to the police as the girl in the polka dot dress, even though, of course, she hadn't worn a polka dot dress. She'd only worn a polka dot scarf. And then she turns up dead, like, less than a year later in a very suspicious circumstance. So it seems like the polka dots might have been a way for conspirators to identify themselves because as one of the people at the event described to me, she said, Lisa, you don't understand because today political events are so casual and people show up in jeans. She goes, but back then, that was like a black tie affair. It's like people got really dressed up to the nines to go to these kind of events. And so that's, because I'm like, how come you kept noticing certain? She goes, because he was in jeans, but he was with this girl in like this house dress. It just didn't, they didn't look like they belonged. And so they kind of stuck out like a sore thumb and, that's why I was able to kind of track them because a lot of people noticed a trio, a girl in a polka dot dress, a guy who looked just like Sirhan, and then another guy, a little taller than Sirhan, with either a gold sweater or a gold top. And these three, or any combination of the two, the polka dot dress and the guy in the gold shirt, guy in the gold shirt and Sirhan, or Sirhan and the girl, um, were seen by numerous witnesses all night. But again, no one knew what they were seeing or that they were going to be part of a, you know, assassination block. They just knew they looked a little out of place. But, you know, most people mind their own business. And, sure. you know, it was a happy occasion. No one wants to think the worst. Right. The, the ambassador is no longer there now. It's a high school. And, uh, yeah, it was nice. I mean, some of the pictures you see on the inside at that time, it was very luxurious. And in a great location, too, right there on Wilshire Kind of down yeah, the street, yeah, Wilshire I got into it a few times because they used to do a filming there. So whenever I saw a film store, I'd stop and see if they'd let me in. And a lot of times they would. Ha <laughs> <Nice. laughs> so I would just sneak around because I really wanted to get the lay of the land myself. And, and uh, yeah. So it was gone. I mean, so all that evidence is gone. Yeah. When did they tear it down? It was like 2000? Uh-huh. I don't remember the exact year, but I, I had gone and talked to the school board and begged them not to tear it down or at least to try and run some tests in the pantry before they did. But the ceiling in the pantry had already been replaced twice, so the acoustics probably wouldn't have matched even if they tried to do sound tests or things there. And I did understand that the infrastructure was kind of crumbling and it would have been very expensive. They would have had to tear it down to build it just as it was. And if they're going to tear it down anyway, then why not build four buildings instead of two and all that? Gotcha. So I, I was kind of happy in the end that I lost that argument because the city desperately needed schools in that spot. But I knew I had to speak up for history and make a plea. And so, yeah, I went. Well, speaking about, about pr- that. present stuff, I mean, right now he has a very well-respected, uh, Sirhan Sirhan has a very well-respected attorney in William Pepper who worked on the Martin Luther King case. And uh, Dr. Brown, who you mentioned, also said that he, uh, Sirhan was the most hypnotizable individual he ever met or something like that. So what's the yeah, current situation every, with the case? Every hypnotist, yeah, every hypnotist who's looked at him 
has said, you know, he's so easily hypnotizable because there is a scale. Not everybody can be hypnotized at all. I mean, it's like 20% of the population can't be hypnotized, which, you know, sometimes is unfortunate for those people. You know, I met a guy who wanted to be hypnotized. He's like, God, you know, there are things I could do if I could be hypnotized. And um, but everybody else is on a scale kind of one to five. And Sergio was like at the bottom of the five, he was super highly hypnotizable. And people like that, you can pretty much make them do anything is what most hypnotists now say. And for a long time, the power of hypnosis was kind of deliberately hidden. There's an interesting little book by a guy named Emile Franchel where he's like, I'm the black sheep of the hypnosis community because I try to do good. Right. <laughs> that was kind of chilling. You know, it's right. like, I try to save people. <laughs> well, what's the situation or status right now? I mean, aren't they trying to get a new trial? Well, like Doesn't said, that bring it, up Kamala there Harris? Are no, yeah, I was going to say, they, they, their final appeal for an evidentiary hearing, which is like the last legal thing they could try Failed, thanks in large part to not only Kamala Harris, but she reached out to Mel Eaton, a British author, who is the Gerald Posner of the RFK case, if that makes any sense to your listeners. He wrote, you know, a book calling Sirhan the Forgotten Terrorist and argued that he was like the first Palestinian terrorist. And again, if you know anything about Sirhan or his life, he loved being American. He didn't consider himself a Palestinian. He barely even remembered Arab because he'd come over here as a young kid. He thought of himself as an American, and he actually lo- loved Robert Kennedy. That's the irony. He's like, why did I kill him? I loved him. I don't understand. Why would I have done that? What was the name of that author again? Mel Eaton, M-E-L-A-Y-T-O-N. And Kamala Harris, reached. I think he reached out to Kamala to offer his services. But he's, you know, what could make the argument that he's working let, let me say it this way. The CIA kind of put out their line of Sirhan being the Palestinian and tried to bring the whole Israeli-Palestinian conflict into the thing of the trial. That was the line they pushed. That's the line Mel Eaton pushed. Is that a coincidence? Or is he serving the CIA's agenda Still as to a this day, idiot right? or as a paid agent? I don't know. Right. Right. It's a <laughs> good question to ask, right? Him tells you everything about Kamala. It's like she's willing to think a guy who is provably innocent. The evidence over and over shows Sirhan didn't know what he was doing, was completely tricked into it, and again, according to my research, didn't even fire a single bullet. Fired blanks as a distraction in a magic act so that all eyes went to him. And and they did when people saw Sirhan. They couldn't take their eyes off him because they didn't want to be shot, not knowing, of course, that he was fired blanks. Even when they're hearing Cap Gun, you don't want to take the chance that you're wrong, right? right. You know? <laughs> it's interesting you say so. that because you said in your intro, it says you wrote, because once you learn how a magic trick works, you can never be fooled again. So uh, exactly. credit exactly. to you for it's, writing this book. This, this magic trick may have been used against Rabin. If you study Seth oh, Rabin and his assassination, there are a lot of parallels. And that's why I think it's important to expose these plots so that people don't get killed. Again, you know, at least not the same way. Gotcha. Lisa, we're coming re- really to the end. We're at 47 minutes. Is there anything you would like to add or um, anything well, we missed? Well, I did, again, Sirhan, the last legal thing we could do for Sirhan and that everybody who's listening can help with is to ask the governor to pardon Sirhan and put him on parole and let him free of jail. He's 75 years old. He's not a threat to anyone. His brother is still living and still in Pasadena. 
and his brother lives alone and could really use the help. I mean, it's like they could help each other. And so I set up a petition. If you just search free Sirhan in Google, it'll be the first thing that shows up. So I hope people go and sign the petition um, because, you know, 75 years, he's been 50 years in jail for a crime he didn't commit. I think that's long enough. The legal system has completely failed him, but maybe the people system, you know, maybe the power of the people can still make a difference, and it's absolutely worth a try. So I really hope people go do that. Awesome. Lisa Peace, the book again is A Lie Too Big to Fail, The Real History of the Assassination of Robert F. Kennedy, available on Amazon. Thank you so much for the interview. Oh, thank you. Thank you for reading it. All right, cool. It's <laughs> awesome. Great, excellent book. Really terrific. Yeah. Great job. All right, have a good day. You too. Okay, bye-bye.